good morning. Let's pray together. Father, we again thank you for the opportunity to come before you and to not just listen to your word, but to bring our hearts to it. And that's so difficult for us to do because our hearts grow hard, we can be distracted easily, and yet today as as we look at this passage, we pray that you might speak to each one and you might help us to understand the things that you're trying to teach us through it. And we ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus, amen. Well, I uh, recently heard a, a true story of something that happened in the late 1960s. There was a man who made a terrible mistake in judgment, and because of this mistake in judgment, he risked causing millions of dollars worth of damage and potentially the loss of several lives, and the mistake came just inches away from getting getting him fired from his job. And I was very surprised to find out what the mistake was. All of this commotion was caused because he brought a corned beef sandwich to work with him. Now, I'm going to tell you more about that in a few minutes. But for now, we are in the middle of a six-week series on the life of Elijah, which is told in the book of 1 Kings in the Old Testament. Now, if you've never read the the book of 1 Kings, it's a wonderful book to read, but I'll give you just a a little bit of an overview. The beginning of the book of 1 Kings starts out in chapter 1 with King David, who is now an old man and not ruling his kingdom in Israel particularly well. Uh, He dies in the second chapter, and what you have there is uh, the story continuing with the transition to power of his son Solomon, who, though he too was a very flawed person, he rules the kingdom with incredible wisdom, and it ushers in kind of a golden age for the people and the kingdom of Israel. Uh, It's a time in their history of almost unimaginable wealth and prosperity and worldwide fame, but following the death of Solomon, everything falls apart. Upon his death, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who is as foolish as his father is wise, takes over. And he listens to the advice of a couple of knuckleheads, which leads to the kingdom of Israel falling apart. There's a rebellion and the nation splits. And what happens is 10 tribes uh, break away up into the north and they elect a new king, a man named Jeroboam. Well, in the south, Rehoboam continues to rule. And, and so First Kings and then Second Kings primarily follows the generations of these kings in both the northern and the southern kingdoms. Now, we left off uh, last week with an introduction to one of those kings. His name was King Ahab. He was the seventh king to rule up in the northern kingdom, and he was a terribly wicked man. Uh, The Bible says that he did more evil in the sight of the Lord than any other king who had come before him, and those kings were all pretty awful too. One of the dumbest things that King Ahab did is he married a woman whose name was Jezebel, and she was like a treacherous snake. Uh, She was actually the daughter of a Sidonian king 
You'll want to remember that, actually, because that's going to come up again later as well. And she was cruel, she was murderous, and she brought into Israel the worship of a pagan god whose name was Baal. In fact, when she was married to King Ahab, she brought with her 850 prophets of Baal who she fed and cared for from her uh, table. And, and this god, Baal, was thought at the time to be in control of the reign. And, and Tom described that last week in his message. Hopefully you, you heard that or you're able to grab the podcast at some point. But the point is that these are very especially dark times in Israel. And into this darkness, God sent a prophet named Elijah who stood alone. Now, uh, the main job of an Old Testament prophet was to call people back to the word of God, the the written word of God. Uh, God had told Moses, he had given to him his law. Moses wrote it down, and so all of these kings had this law. And the prophets, they would remind these kings and the people to do the things that God had already told them to do in his word. And sometimes, on occasions, the prophets would actually speak a new word from God as his spokesman. And God, excuse me, Elijah is doing both of these things for King Ahab. And as we saw last week, Ahab rejects Elijah completely. And so, after declaring that there will be no rain until God says so, which is a direct attack against Baal, the scene uh, which John read for us this morning unfolds. And what I want to do this morning, very simple, is I want to just give you an overview of this passage. I want to share with you what I think is so important about it. And then I want to talk a little bit about how we ought to apply it here and now. Let's start with an overview. Uh, Following his confrontation with King Ahab, God takes Elijah away from Israel and he sends him to a brook where he is fed by ravens. Now, this right here is just a part of what makes the book of 1 Kings so wonderful. And if you haven't read it, you should read it because it's a very strange book. I mean, it is not normal for a man, even in the Bible, to hang out in front of a stream and receive his bread and meat by air delivery every day, right? I mean, what it is that Elijah actually eats is is kind of left to our imagination. You can just sort of picture him there in front of the stream waiting for his dinner, and he looks up and he sees a raven coming, and and in its claws it's got a a bun that's been freshly baked that maybe it's snatched from the window of a baker, and and he receives it, and he looks up and he sees another raven coming, and this one's got a a hamburger actually in its claws. There there was a man flipping a burger up into the air, and then it was just gone. He didn't know what happened to it, and, and it's coming, and then he looks and he sees another raven coming and you hardly see what it's got and it's ketchup and mustard packets are also on the way and he receives those and he eats his dinner and you just would love to have been there to see what that was like. But the point of the passage is this. It's that God is preserving Elijah's life in a way that only God could. And what you see in this book is, is kind of God's power and his humor and his incredible creativity in the way that he cares for his people. But here's one thing that's always bothered me about this. Elijah sat in front of that stream for months, just drinking the water, eating the bread and the meat. It seems to me like such a waste of time. 
I mean, he's basically just kind of camping out all by himself. Why is that? We're going to come back to that, too. We're going to come back to a lot of things today. Eventually, the brook dries up, and God sends Elijah to a town that is called Zarephath. And here, what we're going to see is, yet again, God is going to provide for Elijah in a very unexpected way. He promises to Elijah that he will use, this time, not ravens, but a widow to take care of his needs. Now, particularly in this time period, and particularly during a drought and a famine, a widow is an extremely unlikely helper. Uh, One of the commentators that I, I read about this passage wrote this. He said, a widow in Iron Age Israel didn't attend night school, gained computer skills, and nailed down a position on the office staff of the local medical clinic. She didn't open up her own kitty care in her home to care for the children of mothers in the workforce. Widowhood was usually a dead-end street, an existence of dirt under the fingernails, of scratching out the barest of livings. If one could choose, ravens sounded more dependable than widows. And yet, nevertheless, Elijah is brought to this poor, desperate woman who right at that exact moment, is just gathering a few twigs in front of the city to build a fire, and she's planning on using the very last of her supplies for a final meal before she and her son inevitably starve to death. And in what you might think of as almost darkly humorous, Elijah has the guts to ask this woman to give him some water and some bread first before she goes off to die. Look, look at what she says in verse, what he says in verse 13. He says, And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do what you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterwards, make something for yourself and your son. It's like he's ordering from a restaurant. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. Okay, now this again is amazing. It's it's part of the strangeness of this book. If my children were starving, and I was about to make them their very last meal, and you asked me for some, the chances of me handing it over would be slim to none even if, very nicely, you said please. But this woman actually does it. This widow actually believes what he says. And and it's hard to imagine either the kind of faith that she had or the kind of desperation she found herself in that situation. But of course, what is found is that from that time forward, all of her needs are met. You know, this is a really interesting miracle. There's a lot of miracles that are performed in the Bible, and and some of them are really kind of flashy and extreme. We're going to look at one of those next week. This miracle is more subtle and wonderful. I mean, this woman's jar and her jug are never overflowing, but every day she goes down into her kitchen, and she finds that she's got enough for the next day. How many of you have ever felt God providing for you in that way in a dark season in your life? How many of you have felt that that God just met your need 
every day. You don't know how he did it, but he did. That's what God does for this widow. But sometime later, after rescuing this family from a slow death, unfortunately, death creeps back in again. The woman's son becomes terribly ill, and soon after, he dies, and she is devastated by it, and she's angry, and she is as overwhelmed as any of us would have been in the same situation. You see, this woman, it it turns out, she believes that sometime in the past, she has sinned in some uh, terrible way, and this sin that she's committed is, uh, has has, uh, been brought to the attention of God since God's prophet was coming to stay in her home. God realized that that, that she had sinned in this way and, and that he had caused Uh, her son's death as a result of this. She's kind of a superstitious woman. And so she is furious at Elijah that he even came to her in the first place. And Elijah, you're going to see, is very, very upset about this too. And, and, And what you can see is he's got this concern for her and he's got this empathy towards this woman that you even experience in the words of his prayer. And and what does he do? He, he literally takes this woman's lifeless son from her arms and he carries him up into his bedroom and he sets him down on his bed. And we have no idea why he does this, but he lays down on the child three times and he cries out to God. And God does here for this child what he promises he will do in Christ for all of his children. He reaches into death and pulls this boy back to life. And the text tells us that in verse 23, it says, Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. It's a wonderful story. It's a very touching story. God uses this widow to take care of Elijah's needs, and God uses Elijah to take care of the widow's needs. And only a a sovereign God who really cares would do something like that. That's the background to the passage. What's the significance of the passage? What's the big deal here? Why is this recorded for us? Well, in order to understand the main idea of this passage, it's important to notice two things about the passage. And the first thing is that the passage focuses more than anything else on the word of God. You're going to find that phrase or something like it is repeated seven times as you read through 1 Kings 17. Uh, In verse 1, judgment comes through Elijah against Ahab by God's word. In verse 2, the word of the Lord is spoken to Elijah, which sends him to the brook, and he goes, verse 5, according to the word of the Lord. Verse 8, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah, and he is now sent to the widow. Verse 14, Elijah says, for thus says the God of Israel. Verse 16, the jar of flour was not spent, and the jug of oil did not become empty, quote, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. And finally, in verse 25, kind of tying everything together and wrapping it up, the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth is truth. 
Now, in the Bible, when something is repeated, especially when it's repeated a lot of times, and especially when it's, and it's repeated in kind of a, a small uh, section, we should always pay very close attention to it. And what we see in this passage is that all throughout this story, God is speaking. Elijah here, he's, he's just the messenger in some sense. He's in the background of this story. But God, all throughout this passage with this widow, is speaking his word to protect her and guide her and care for her, and and Elijah too. God's word is providing for these people in a dark and trying time. And so what you have here is you have the the word of God as as a, a spoken gift. It's a treasure here. It is uniquely precious and valuable, both to Elijah and to the widow. Now, the second thing that's so important to notice here about this story is something very, very simple, and that is the location. I want to go back to that corned beef sandwich for a minute here. Why on earth did that sandwich cause such a commotion? Well, the answer is that the story actually did not take place on earth. Uh, The story takes place, and it's a true story, in a shuttle, in a space shuttle that was on one of the uh, Apollo missions, I think, if that was the 60s. Maybe it was a little bit earlier. Anyway, it it turns out that astronaut food is specially made. It's kind of compressed and and packaged so that it can't break apart easily in space. And the reason behind this is because they don't want crumbs from food to kind of float off and get into the crevices of equipment and, and potentially cause some very serious problems. Well, this one particular astronaut decided that he was going to sneak his corned beef sandwich with him to space, and uh, it it almost created a a very serious problem. It really put the entire mission in jeopardy when he did that. Now, that story didn't make a lot of sense to any of us until we understood the location. Location is a very vital detail in that story, and it's the very same in 1 Kings 17. The location is a critical detail to understand what's happening here. Think about it this way. Elijah is sent to a widow who lives in a city called Zarephath, right? Which belongs to, we're told in this passage, Sidon. They were kind of like twin cities, Sidon and Zarephath. Now, does the name Sidon ring a bell to you at all? It might Because who is a Sidonian princess? Jezebel, right? So Sidon is kind of the home territory of Jezebel. So what has happened is Jezebel has come from Sidon all the way to Israel, bringing with her deception and death and idolatry. And yet God sends Elijah behind enemy lines to to Zarephath, bringing truth and life and his word. Isn't that cool? Do you see that reversal? You see what God has done there? Well, that's neat, but the location actually is important for an even bigger reason. And the reason that we know this is that Jesus himself actually tells us why the location is so important. I want you, if you have a Bible, to flip to the book of Luke, chapter 4. 
Uh, Luke chapter 4 in the New Testament there towards the beginning. We're going to look at uh, just a couple of verses, verse 25 and 26. And it's important to understand that in this passage in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is speaking to Israelites in his hometown of Nazareth, and he's speaking to people who did not believe in him. They would not listen to him. They completely rejected the things that he was trying to tell them. And and now he's speaking with them and, and listen to part of what he says. Verse 25, he says, But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Okay? Now, what's going on there? Well, Jesus points out to these unbelieving, hard-hearted people in Nazareth, he, he, he points out this passage, and he says to them, listen, there were plenty of widows in Israel who were suffering exactly in the same way that the widow in Zarephath was. And God could have sent Elijah to any number of them and done exactly the same thing. But God sent Elijah to none of them. God sent Elijah to a foreigner instead. So why did God do this? Well, again, the main job of an Old Testament prophet was to call people back to the word of God and to remind them to do the things that God had already told them to do in his word. But what you find again and again in the book of 1 Kings is that throughout the book, most of the kings reject God's prophet and they've already rejected his word. And Ahab in particular is completely unresponsive to God's word. He just won't listen. And so what does God do as a result? He stops speaking. Elijah announces the drought and he goes silent. God pulls his prophet away from Israel. And so Elijah, who could have been teaching and helping and blessing and protecting Israel, who could have at that time been the voice of guidance and help and hope and love and promises and all the things that God offers, he is instead sent to hang out at a stream, skipping stones and twiddling his thumbs for months. And the idea there is, what a waste. Israel had a prophet who spoke the words of the living God, but they would not listen. And so God sends him away. And after a while, some months go by, nothing changes. And what does God do? He picks up his prophet again, and he sends him even further away. And this time, he sends him to bless a foreigner. So instead of sending Elijah to work all of these tremendous, wonderful miracles to a widow in Israel, he is sent to a a Gentile woman from Jezebel's homeland. And what you have here is you have, in contrast of the people of Israel, who with with, um, very limited exception were completely unresponsive to the word of God, you've got this foreign Baal-worshipping, superstitious widow who hears the word of God through Elijah and she actually risks her life. I mean, this woman has the faith that Israel should have had but didn't. 
This woman gives up her very last crumbs of survival when Elijah asks. And so uh, God, in his power and his wisdom and his grace, he, surprise, he supplies all of her needs. This woman actually gets to witness her dead son being brought back to life. In Israel, over here, they miss out on it completely. And that's why this final statement that this widow makes is so important. She says, now I know that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. And she knew that because she got to see it. She actually got to taste it every morning at breakfast. She held that truth when she held her her son who had been resurrected from the dead. This woman, this widow, was a recipient of the blessing of God that should have been Israel's. But because of their rebelliousness, because of their disbelief, Israel misses out. God removes his prophet. Elijah is sent elsewhere. And Israel's loss is the widow's gain. This passage is primarily a judgment against Israel. And when Jesus in Luke chapter 4 shares this passage with, with these hard-hearted, uh, hard-hearted, rebellious people who live in Nazareth who had Jesus, who is God's word in the flesh, we're told, standing right in front of them, and they too were rejecting him, Jesus says, you're just like Ahab. You're doing the same thing. Jesus applies this exact same principle to them. And Jesus is hinting at something that he would soon do in his ministry, and that is that he would move on. Israel rejects him, and Jesus ends up going out to the Gentiles. And the people of Nazareth here, they understand what Jesus is getting at. They understand that this is a passage of judgment, and and so it says to us that they're filled with wrath, and they actually try to take Jesus and grab him and throw him off a cliff. This passage teaches us, at least in part, that when God offers his grace and truth to people through his word, when they continually reject it, eventually he moves on and offers it to someone else. That's a very hard truth this morning. It's a very serious warning this morning. Many of you would know of uh, the prophet Jonah who was given kind of a timeout from God for three days in the belly of a fish for all of his bad behavior. Uh, He was down uh, in the whale or a a large fish, and what he finds at, at the bottom of the ocean is he finds repentance, at least in part. There's some other things he's going to need to repent of later, but but he finds repentance, and his heart is softened, and he's humbled in a way. And, and he says something at the bottom of that ocean, inside that fish, that's so profound. He says, those who cling to foolish idols forfeit the grace that could have been theirs. Those who cling to foolish idols forfeit the grace that could have been theirs. And that is exactly what Israel did. They forfeit. I want to make uh, just one application to us uh, this morning, and you probably understand what it is already. When we avoid 
ignore, disregard, diminish, wander away from, close our ears to, or even outright reject the things that God tells us in his word, we run the very same risk. We run the risk of forfeiting the grace and goodness through his word that God intends for us. I, uh, I want to read something that I found in a book probably about 15 years ago, and uh, I've kept it during this time. And actually, there have been different times throughout the years, not very often, but where I've actually shown this story to different people who were kind of wandering from God, beginning to close their ears. And I, I didn't do it in a judgment way. It was more a loving way um, because I, I think this story is actually sort of helpful in this. Uh, it, it was written by a pastor who has a young son, and he's trying to teach his son um, the importance of obeying and listening the word of God. And um, he, he tries to teach him to listen to God's word through the Bible and, and God's word in that still, small voice, uh, primarily through our conscience. That's what this story is mostly about this morning. But the, the setting for the story is that his son Aaron, who is in middle school, has gone away to a Christian summer camp for the first time. And the father's really excited for all the things that's going to happen in his son's life. And uh, halfway through the week, he's driving past the camp and he decides to um, stop by just to see how his son is doing. And I've edited the story a little bit just for time. I've cut a few things out, but I think you'll get the gist of it. And, And this is what the pastor writes. He says, I expected to find Aaron having a great time growing in the Lord and making new friends. Instead, he had gotten himself into deep trouble. Evidently, on their first lunch break, he was involved in a fight. But it wasn't really a fight. It was sort of a pre-fight. You know, the stuff guys do before the fight because they really don't want to fight. Anyway, some kids said something, and Aaron said something back. The tension heightened, the smack deepened, And the next thing you know, Aaron's lunging at him and his friends are holding him back. By the time I got there, two days had passed and Aaron refused to ask for forgiveness. When I confronted Aaron and asked him if the story I was given was accurate, he said, absolutely. He didn't deny anything. He also wasn't sorry for anything. I told him he needed to ask for forgiveness and he told me that wasn't going to happen. He wasn't sorry He would do it again, and upon reflection, he was sorry for only one thing. He didn't get at least one good punch in before they brought him down. I still insisted that he needed to make things right. He said he would not, and in fact, he insisted on being allowed to leave the camp. He reminded me that I had committed to him that he would never have to pretend or play the Christian game. I told him if that's what he wanted to do, he could leave. I also told him that I felt it was a mistake. He insisted and asked me if I would help him pack. I said no. I wouldn't stop him from leaving, but I wouldn't help him leave either. So for the next hour, he put together his stuff, dragged it up the hill, and pushed it into the car. Just as we were about to leave, I asked him to sit with me and talk one last time before we drove away. We sat on two large rocks in the middle of the woods. I asked him a simple question. Aaron, is there any voice inside you telling you what you should do? He paused and then responded, 
Yes. What is the voice telling you that I should stay and work it out? I asked him, can you identify that voice? He immediately said, yes, it's God. It was the moment I had waited for. I didn't expect it to come under those circumstances. Nevertheless, it was there. I turned to Aaron and said, Aaron, do you realize what just happened? You just heard the voice of the living God. He spoke to you from within your soul. Forget everything else that has just happened. God has spoken to you, and you were able to recognize it. I'll never forget his response. Well, I'm still not doing what he said. I explained to him that that was his choice, but this is what would happen. If he rejected the voice of God and chose to disobey his guidance, his heart would become hardened and his ears would become dull. And if he continued on this path, there would be a day when he would never again hear the voice of God. There would come a day when he would deny that God even speaks or has ever spoken to him. But if he treasured God's voice and responded to him with obedience, then his heart would be softened and his ears would always be able to hear the whisper of God into his soul. Now here's the thing about this passage. The story here focuses mostly on hearing that quiet voice of God through our conscience. But this is so important. It is no less applicable to the spoken word of God which has been written for us in the Bible. This is God's written word. Psalm 98 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Jesus said, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. As long as we have the capacity, the ability to hear from God, God says we should listen attentively to God. Otherwise, we run the risk of forfeiting his grace. I don't want to tie this warning up in a neat little bow and, and make us all feel good about this. This is a serious warning. And what is it that we forfeit? Well, what's interesting about 1 Kings 17 is that we run the risk of potentially forfeiting the same things that Israel did. God's word to that widow was primarily two things. First of all, it was an invitation, a wonderful invitation to, a, to an invitation to a desperate woman. God said, trust me, and I promise you, you will not go hungry. Have faith, take a risk, listen to me, and I will supply your needs. And Jesus himself says to us the same thing. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. It doesn't matter what kind of drought you're in. It doesn't matter what season of famine you're in. Jesus promises, if you trust me, if you come to me, I will supply your needs. It might not overflow, but I'll get you through the day. And then I'll get you through the next day too. 
God's offer to that widow was an invitation. And secondly, it was something even better. It was a gift. He gave this woman the gift of life. He rescued her son from the sting of death. God offers to us the same thing. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. So what we're left with is we're left with God speaking his word to two people, King Ahab and the widow of Zarephath. One scoffed, but the other listened. One rejected, the other received. One forfeit, and the other enjoyed. And the question this morning is, which one will you be? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful truth is that God wants to speak to you through his word. Are you listening? Let's pray. Oh, Father, this passage stings. It it hurts because it, it, it forces us to just be reminded of how stubborn we can be. How easily it is that that we diminish the things that you tell us are are true, the ways that we don't obey you or listen to you. We thank you so much for the grace of of Jesus himself. We thank you that uh, as we're sort of confronted in this passage with our, our failures as, as we see ourselves so often much more like King Ahab than, than the widow in that passage. We, we thank you that we can find forgiveness and grace in you. But we also know that it requires from us repentance. Help us, each and every one, uh, to listen to you, to obey you, to trust you, to depend on you, not to cling to foolish idols. Father, we pray that you would um, help us to see your glory and your goodness and your grace. We know it's there. You showed it so evidently to that widow. We pray that we might respond as she did in faith. And we thank you that you invite us to taste your goodness and your grace in our deepest needs. Jesus' name.